0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft reading series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in our workshops. Writers in workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The theme of the draft 29.0 is separation anxiety, and the draftees are Megan Denman, YA Novel, J.D. Frey, poetry, Emily Johns O'Leary, short story, Marvin Guyman, short story,
1: and Cecilia Brownfoot, poetry. How's everybody doing? Yeah, thank you for spending your Saturday night here. Um, it's a fantastic opportunity uh, to be here in front of you as the MC for tonight. I think that this is one of the coolest events um, that this place has. For me, it's been a journey as as a writer to try to move from the stage to the page. It's been my journey, and um, there was a p- point uh, when I was selected to read in a draft, actually a year ago uh, to date, really, um, uh, where I felt um, that my efforts were kind of rewarded, and I thought that that was a really kind of unique way, because sometimes... As we can probably all relate to, if we're writers, um, you feel like you're just throwing paint at walls and don't know if it's art or not. And uh, this is a great thing. So um, for um, Megan, J.D., Emily, Marvin and Cecilia, um, we are definitely um, proud to have you here. And uh, um, we are super hopeful that uh, you'll continue to be a lighthouse and represent as best as you can within here. You know, I was doing some research and I realized that this thing started in 2009, which doesn't seem that long ago, especially if it was an annual thing, but it's not. Um, they have this thing quarterly so uh, four times a year um, this is how much people get to get represented inside of this And now uh, I, I just like to be clear on, on a couple of things about uh, the, the school of thought that I come from when you come to an event where someone is about to bear a little portion of their soul to you um, that I don't like to uh, sit in position and look at them um, like they are slowly decomposing in front of me okay <laughs> Um, it is said that, uh, public speaking um, to some folks is scarier than the idea of death, and I understand this. There are ways to make people feel warm and received. Now, I don't know if this transfers over to uh, fiction and short stories, but in the community that I grew up in, there's a nice way when you hear something that really moves you, you can just give a subtle snap like this, right? right? Now, this isn't like the end applause, because the end applause is like the end applause after Shaquille O'Neal dunks a basketball or something like that, okay? You can applaud someone like uh, like like it's the best thing in the whole wide world. Like they just won the end of the Super Bowl uh, on a game-winning kickoff return, and they had no legs. <laughs> like it was the most amazing thing you've ever seen in your life. Just little shoot moves, you know? It was the most amazing thing you've seen in your life. Okay, that's how you cheer. Like, oh my God, I can't. Uh, uh. Did you see it? I'ma share it, flip it. Yes, I'ma tweet it. Yes, all that. Okay, that's how. That's how you cheer. But while somebody's um, reading, um, I think it's important to, to give reaction. Another appropriate reaction is what we call the ancestral grunt. Okay, this cannot come from a place of non-authenticity, though. Okay, now, now I know. I grew up in a family filled up with black folks, and when we hear things, it's. Mm. Oh, Mm. Mm. yes. Mm. Well, all that stuff. It's like a blend of like a a, a Baptist church and an ACDC concert. okay. Okay, like uh, hallelujahs and hell yeahs are welcome. But um, the big thing here is um, at the top of this laundry list is just to make sure that you're supporting people because it's super important. And I think that um, for me personally, it was a nice um, formal welcome to the community here um, and had definitely has kept me on my path to continue, which has led to um, me getting hired here, which is pretty dope. Um, pretty dope. All right. So um, our first reader tonight um, is going to be J.D. Fry. Now... Um, I am actually in class with JD, um, so I get to actually get to watch him shake it up, uh, which is one of my favorite things to do, because he's hilarious, and he does things with poetry that I never even tried to do, or even think I can do, which is why we should take classes. It's not just about our instructors, but how much we learn from our classmates as well. Um, before we start, if you have an open seat next to you, can you raise your hand, okay? Okay. People who are standing, there are open seats. Come join. Come join. Don't be awkward. Yep, do it. Do it. Do it quick. you move them slow. We got to move fast. Okay? Yep, keep those hands up. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Come on in. Come on in. Get yourself comfy. Yeah. Let your bones hit some cushion. Uh-huh. Don't get that. Yeah. There we go. Now we all cozy. Yep. You want the front row seat? You going to take my seat? Okay, that's cool. What? I'm playing. I'm playing. <laughs> <laughs> now um, I asked J.D. if he could uh, change any law in the world what would he change and he um, elected to ban styrofoam peanuts uh, <laughs> because he believes that they're evil and no matter what you do you can't keep them all in the box and I support that as well um, but to give more of a formal um, and wonderful detailed um, Uh, note about J.D., I'm going to call up my um, instructor, Christopher Rancic.
2: All right. Um, Really, it's a great pleasure to be able to introduce uh, J.D. Fry tonight. What a great way to kick off our reading tonight, too. Um, I've known J.D. since my very first... um, gig as an instructor here in 2005, so we go way back. Uh, he was in the first workshop that I taught, uh, which I, I always remember this. It was his night to be workshopped, and he brought in two big plastic bags full of the strangest hats you've ever seen, and his one request was that everyone in the workshop wear a funny foam hat or whatever uh, while we read his poem and responded to it. Um, I will never forget that experience. I, I'm not a wearer of hats, but in that in that instance, I became one. So, uh, but our friendship goes back a long way, and um, it's great to be able to introduce him here tonight. Um, J. Diego Fry, whom uh, I've known all these years. For those of you who don't know what's coming, <laughs> let me try to clue you in a little bit. Um, JD's poems are sort of like a cruise ship made of popsicle sticks uh, held together by glue made from despair. Um, powered by libido and crewed by obscure figures from pop culture, all of them topless, who will, if they catch you, tickle you until you pee your pants. I worked on that this afternoon. <laughs> Yet there really is more to it than that, and it's damned hard to codify, but um, uh, when the laughter subsides after he reads a poem or during and you wipe your eyes, you'll find a, a kind of curious music echoing in the poems and also a strong impulse rising inside of you to just hug somebody. And I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he brings these things together. I've read with him. I've been um, in the audience for his readings. And I always get those mix of feelings. Uh, So you're about to see that happen. Um, So uh, here he he is, the master of the tilted triolet, the torturer of slant rhymes, the love child of Lucille Ball and Kafka, (laughs) Uh, the myth, the man, J.D. Fry.
3: Thanks a lot. Oh, shit. Um, the the theme of the evening tonight, separation, separation anxiety. Uh, Chris Branzik asked me if I would do. I I promised to read new poems tonight, but Chris asked me if I would do one classic. So here's a classic. Here's an old poem. It's called "At Long Last We Meet." Somewhat. Forlorn, I could imagine your kiss and the strange, seemingly endless series of events which has served to separate me from it. But last night, in a dream, I kissed Kevin Bacon. (laughs) Perhaps that connects me to you somehow. (laughs) thank you very much the great thing about um, taking uh, workshops um, in particular here at Lighthouse is that uh, it's an opportunity to generate new work so I'm going to read things that I've been writing in Chris's workshop over the past six weeks. Um, and I hope that, they're, um, hope that they're polished enough for you tonight. Um, the first poem is titled uh, Cambia Su Vida. Cambia Su Vida. Again, that title is Cambia Su Vida. <laughs> <laughs> These words read... Off of a billboard, a good 50 minutes into the long, slow drive southward, Federal Boulevard to home. Cambia su vida. Cambia su vida? Ha! More like Cambia los Pantalones.
4: <laughs> Am
3: I right? This question spoken aloud at the passenger who is not actually there in the empty seat just across the cup holder from my tired driving ass. (laughs) It's a mundane madness, the byproduct of a twice daily commute to a decent job in a small cube, in a large room, in a big box building. Full of perfectly nice people, who are not—not not one of them—writing poetry. <laughs> As the discussion continues, in English, we say "my underpants." In Spanish the underpants. Yes, and that is just how the world is, James, the empty passenger seat replies. You have too many voices in your car, too many colons in your epiphanies, and there are some people who just aren't as possessive of their underpants? <laughs> Touche, amigo. I'm, I know when I'm beat. Thanks.
4: <laughs>
3: this next one I'm going to read for uh, specifically f- for Chris. Uh, this this poem is. Too much TMI (laughs) (laughs) too much TMI. One like about last Wednesday, it was hot, sweatier than usual, and I was walking just a few blocks in the sun to buy a cup of hot coffee, and how the atmosphere was sticky. Bordering on itchy in the hydraulic chamber of my boxer shorts. Two. Married life is like a travel guide. We fall in unvisited love with one another's spouses. Their bodies are Vacation destinations that we have not been to but have read all the reviews of. Three. Again, that same sex dream. I am making noisy and vigorous love to a zombie morally safer. You remember Morley. He used to be on that news program that punctuated its stories with a ticking clock, like a bogus heartbeat. Except in here, he's undead, not reporting a story, just growling at me. He sounds like Marlena Dietrich with a mouthful of jello. Four. Four. Sometimes, when nobody else is around, I scream quietly, like one of those funny internet goats.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: With the volume slider pulled all the way down. Five. After all this time, I still say ATM machine.
4: <laughs>
3: and on occasion, I can love you and hate you at the same time. Thanks. And one last poem for you. Um, Chris mentioned triolets. This this poem is a series of three triolets. Triolets are eight-line poems um, that have a distinct rhyme scheme and that repeat lines throughout the poem. Um, this poem... It's just water. Um, <laughs> this poem... I, I don't want to dedicate it to Wikipedia, but... Let's just say this poem was inspired by Wikipedia. Um, it's got a kind of a long title. Um, On learning that I share a birthday with U.S. Vice President Elbridge Gerry, born July seventeenth,
4: seventeen forty-four.
3: Elbridge Gerry, Elbridge Gerry. Fifth VP of this US, born 220 years to the day before me, Elbridge Jerry, Elbridge Jerry, the connection somewhat arbitrary.
4: <laughs> we, sh-
3: we, sh- <laughs> we share a birthday nonetheless. Elbridge Gerry, Elbridge Gerry, fifth VP of this U.S. You went to Harvard, and I surfed for porn. (laughs) Exactly two centuries and two decades apart. You created the nation into which I was born. You went to Harvard, and I surfed for porn. You signed declarations, I ate too much cheese corn, and watched television and bought eight tracks at Kmart. You went to Harvard, and I surfed for porn, exactly two centuries and two decades apart. J. Diego, J. Diego, first pen name plucked from his brain. Born five years before 11 Apollo, J. Diego, J. Diego builds bridges out of rhyming Lego between himself and greater men. J. Diego, J. Diego, first pen name plucked from his brain. Thanks very much for listening, guys.
1: <laughs> JD Fry, JD Fry. <laughs> Absolutely, I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he does it. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, next on our list, we have Marvin Guyman. Now, I got to talk to Marvin earlier today. I asked him a, a very simple question. I said, um, what are three things that could make a perfect day? And he said, well, a day like today where uh, this organization invites him to uh, read his work. And he also said, a day without a hangover. And <laughs> I agree with that as well. Um, but uh, lastly, he also said a day where he gets to bicycle with his daughter, which I thought was a beautiful thing. Okay. Um, bringing up Marvin. Um, is going to be uh, Andrea Dupree um, in replacement of Christopher Merkner. So give Andrea a round of applause as she comes out.
5: Christopher Merkner, uh, those of you who haven't met him, uh, stands taller than I, I do and might be intellectually superior to me. So I just want to say that. Um, so he he had notes here saying, opening gratitude, which thank you, thank you, and thank you. <laughs> Dithering, self-deprecating remark, which I feel like I already did with the... <laughs> um, and I'm really glad that he drafted Marvin because I wanted to draft Marvin when he was in my class. Um, there was a topic... I, I think it was gifting and re-gifting that just was so perfect for one of the other writers in my class, but Marvin always stood out, and I think Christopher's intro captures a little bit of how and why. Um, so here's, this is Christopher, so pretend I'm him. Here's what I've learned about fiction writing from Marvin Guyman's stories. Husbands and wives can argue over the merits of picking up a hitchhiker who possesses a crude wooden staff and longsword and still pick him up. (laughs) Husbands can paint a mural on the walls of their homes, and the mural can be of the husband's wife, naked, riding a cosmic mountain lion into an oceanic-looking deep outer space. A house can have mushrooms growing out of its carpeting and up its walls. Husband artists can attempt to exchange their artwork with homeless cello players on the street just so they might listen to the homeless cello player on the street for free without feeling guilt. Sometimes husbands will accidentally kill a hitchhiker with the hitchhiker's own (laughs) longsword. Sometimes wives say things like, the mushrooms in the house are starting to grow on me. (laughs) And then the mushrooms can, in fact, start literally growing on this character, and they can keep growing and growing until the character is literally enshrouded in mushrooms. A mountain lion can enter a house overrun by fungi and mushrooms through a cat door, jump up on the bed beside a resting, entirely enshroomed wife, put its face right up to hers, and we can read this experience described as such, and I quote, a misty puff of brown, like fungal spores, blew into the cat's face from her mouth, and the cat sneezed. <laughs> Domestic realism is a much larger subgenre of contemporary literary fiction than I often realize, and Marvin Guyman is finding doors in the chamber of that subgenre no one yet knows about, and he's kicking them wide open. It's been my pleasure to work for the past few weeks with Marvin in our advanced short story workshop, and it's my very sincere pleasure to introduce you to him tonight.
6: Okay, um, I think Christopher did way more justice to my work than it deserves, but he did c- capture the essence of what happens in the story. Um, so he 's asked me to read this rough draft that I started at the beginning of of this session, and I will just start at the beginning because obviously, if I start anywhere else it won 't make any sense to anyone um, so i 'll just start at the foundations um, and thank you, Andrea. Yeah. Thank you, Christopher, and hopefully he's feeling better. Okay, this story is entitled Wildcats. Picking up the hitchhiker had been a spontaneous decision, and Jean knew very well that Jan would not condone the choice, especially since the stranger's crude wooden staff, not to mention his longsword, could, j- could damage the brittle upholstery, the only thing about the rust-eaten, slime-green gremlin that was not falling apart. Jean did it anyway, partly out of compassion and partly out of a long-cultivated desire to embrace the unconventional. He was an artist, after all. Sometimes, he thought, as the man awkwardly situated himself and his gear in the cramped back seat, one just had to do what other people probably would not, if only to preserve one's individual specialness, one's freedom to choose. That hitchhiker was more than some guy on the side of a lonely country road. More than some guy who dressed only in leather, a guy, he and Jan, had once spotted wearing a kind of buckskin onesie with a thick silver zipper that ran from the chest around to the middle of the ass, legs and arms bare to the elements. On this particular day, this man signified a test of Jean's life trajectory, a mile marker or fork in the road, an opportunity for asserting his distinctness in the world. "'Thanks for the lift, boss,' the guy had said. "'Dig your wheels, very green.' "'No prob,' Gene responded. "'No reason a guy couldn't take the road less traveled than a gremlin.' "'Jan always said the hitcher was sketchy, "'and Gene, deferring to her ever-level head, "'couldn't deny the astuteness of his wife's assertion. "'She always seemed to, to see things so clearly.' to decode the essence of reality in a way that had continuously eluded him to the frustration of parents, teachers, employers, and admittedly even himself. Jan told Jean not to pick up this guy every time they had passed him on the way into town to drop her off at the bank where she worked part-time as a teller, a job that had started out out full-time before her hours were dramatically reduced forcing them to move out of town into a skirtless, uninsulated mobile home in a trailer park tucked against the the steep wall of a narrow canyon wall called Wildcat Draw. They moved there for the low rent, fleeing the pricey tourist town where they had, in the more buoyant heyday of their early 20s, lived off student loans before graduating. Jan with a a degree in accounting, Jean with a degree in studio art. The subsequent several years were characterized by a slow financial atrophy that swept them from a rented condo to a tiny apartment to the canyon which had, as Jan once phrased it, a rather astounding lineup of inhabitants. How could you think, unless you're a genuine dumb shit, which I still want to believe you aren't, that this guy isn't scary? He totes a a medieval weapon around, which, by the way, isn't even close to being his most disturbing attribute, she said. Her hands on her her hips as she stood over him while he sat on the couch, finger-painting and vigorously masticating a puck of dry rice cake. Jean was confident, confident of being in the clear, though, in terms of his understanding of their relationship. She said more than once that she was initially attracted to him because of the way he thought, because of his rebel intellect. They had first met 10 years earlier at a college party, a setting in which he often cornered people and espoused the value of embracing the slippery, subjective nature of human truth. But this sword guy, he had to admit, was really unique. Categorically off the grid, a true outlier. Jan, it was cold out and getting dark. He looked miserable. Plus, his sword was all tied up in that blanket. If he was so cold, why couldn't he just use the blanket, put it around his shoulders or something? He swaddles that sword like it's a baby. Why, why am I arguing about this? I don't care if he really is some kind of fucked-up wizard or whatever. Serial <laughs> kill- killers get cold, too. You just don't go out of your way to give them rides. <laughs> Jan's expression was pinched, reminding Jean of summertime, of those lazy afternoons she had foraged for wild chokecherries behind the trailer. When she discovered how they made an interesting tint when pulverized and smeared on canvas Not to mention their nutritional richness If all cleanup could be so easy as licking leftover paint from your fingers He had frost on his little beard Fuck that guy's little beard (laughs) She was right He could be dangerous And it was, in fact, a little beard A scraggy dreadlock twisted into a single tube of hair on his chin it resembled something, something entomological in nature, like a proboscis or an ovopositor. <laughs> the thought made him shiver. Jan left the room. The bathroom door slammed shut, the structure shaking on its cinderblock legs as if moved by some trembler in the earth below. Jean remained on the sofa, his fingers and the corners of his mouth yellow with paint he mused that the swordsman guy possibly fed through the beard maybe even blew smoke rings out of it as he inhaled as he as he smoked weed from his not unimaginable illegal grow operation outside a cave he shared with an ancient grizzly bear somewhere deep in the forest past where the road ceased where it petered out rather than abruptly dead ending shifting almost unnoticed from pavement to, pavement to gravel to two primitive tire tracks to a brown grassy opening in the woods that by gradations became taller grass and brush and then towering trees, dwelling somewhere beyond that place where he festooned his cavern walls with found feathers, animal bones, and the accru- accoutrements of missing hikers. I take a breath. That was one sentence. <laughs> He just, wanted to drop, he just wanted to get dropped off at the liquor store down the road, is all Jean shouted down the hall. Okay, then, Jan's Jan showered muffled voice mimicked his own. If you get into that grad school we talked about in the Big Apple, this place will be nothing but a colorful inter- interlude. I'll get a deferment. You can get a good job, a work-study type arrangement. You can do art anywhere, Jan said. We don't need more student loans just to put off paying other old ones. Let's, let's just go someplace where we, do, where we won't have to worry about mountain lions slithering, slithering in through the pet door or nasty carpet mushrooms. Jan was, was referring to a troop of black mushrooms she discovered one morning sprouting inches from her face as she awoke on their frameless futon mattress after heavy rains revealed copious leaks somewhere within the wall. <laughs> Jan feared that a cougar could slip in through the broken dog door that led into their bedroom. Gene knew he should never have told her about the mountain lion he'd seen slinking on its belly across the road. At first, at first he thought it was a fat khaki snake, and relieved to dis- was relieved to discern that it was really a big cat. <laughs> he'd heard from the brothers in the trailer next door that cougars were secretive creatures and did not want to be seen, wanted to avoid any hassle with people, and this cat was apparently acting accordingly. <laughs> "'Cats, wizards, mushrooms, you worry too much,' said Jean. "'The neighbors next door, two middle-aged brothers living in a tiny red-and-white 1950s-era room trailer, "'spent every weekend evening sitting in folding chairs on their roof, "'sipping Coors Banquet beer into the early hours.' They had traded some of these beers for a couple of Jean's unframed artworks art- artworks which they had hung inside their place. One portrayed what he told them was an abstract sunset, and the other was of the brothers themselves seated on the roof, a blushing, rubicund mushroom cloud blooming beyond a backdrop of rolling hills. Jean had accidentally cut his finger on a broken plate while doing dishes while taking a break from painting, and in a fit of ins- inspiration, had used his own blood to achieve the unique red tint in this particular painting, though he thought it best to keep that to himself. <laughs> the periodic clanking of the brothers' empty cans as they fell to the ground all night was, at first, an annoyance, but it had become a kind of comfort to Jan and Jean, knowing that day without knowing that, sorry, somebody was out there, awake, keeping watch in the darkness. On one particular Saturday morning, they were still up there. Sweeping the roof, perhaps getting ready to descend and disappear inside for the week, as was their routine. Jean emerged from his front door, and the handsome one, that's what they called him, yelled down, "Jean, my man, no worries. But there was some gent standing outside your place last night, peeking in the kitchen window. Dude had this elongated-like thing strapped on his back. There were footprints in the slush beneath the window. Did he say anything, do anything, Jean asked? The other brother, the one they called Beaker, but for different reasons. <laughs> Jan, because of the eyes, Jean because of the hair, said, Nope, he just stood there, real stationary-like, when I asked him, What you up to, my man? Okay, if you see him again, let me know. Jean got in the gremlin and headed to town to look for a job, as he'd promised Jan he would. But he wound up listening to an old man without legs play cello on a street corner all day until the man told him, Drop some scratch or get a move on, asshole. <laughs> when he got back home, pulling up to the trailer, he felt a rush of anxiety. He probably shouldn't tell Jan about the man looking in the window after the mountain lion thing at all. He could do the worrying for both of them. Jan hastily ushered him, him inside and immediately locked the door and stood. And, sorry. Jan hastily. Okay, I have some anxiety sometimes in crowds, but you don't need to know that but now you do yeah. Uh, yeah. Jan, Jan hastily ushered him inside and immediately locked the door and stood with her back pressed firm against it her hands splayed flat, flat against its surface that man was here today that medieval fucker I was just sitting here reading on the couch and I looked up and there was his face not an inch from the window I could see the green of his eyes his breast steaming up the window shit shit is right. Did you call the cops? Doesn't he have to do something first? Commit some crime? They could probably nail him as a peeping Tom. Should we call them now? Well, he was probably looking for me. Since he kind of knows me, I'll take care of it. Such a hostile place, the world. If you say so. All these damaged psyches out there craving attention. I get it, I get it, I'll take care of it. That is a good stopping place. <laughs> but, um.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much, Marvin. That was awesome. That was great. Fantastic. All right, we're moving through this bad boy. And this is this is what I like about the draft so much is the different styles. I think that, you know, um, in boxing, uh, they always say styles make fights. And those are my favorite things. A champion can get hit by some wildly young Latin American fighter who has no name. And I just love to see those types of battles. And tonight is like that. So many different styles coming up here to this mic. Um, the next person coming up is going to be Cecilia Brownfoot. And I asked her a simple question. Like I asked everybody, I said, what is the line between insanity and creativity? Cecilia simply said, there is no line. <laughs> we are all crazy. <laughs> Thought the answer was solid. Um, she um, has an instructor by the name of Elizabeth Robinson, who I've had the pleasure of taking um, courses with her before, um, it is not easy to make it to this type of thing when you're dealing with some some sickness and some illness, and Elizabeth has decided to brave um, her own illness, just to uh, bring up our our writer for tonight. So give it up for Elizabeth Robinson.
7: Glad to be here. Cecilia Hills from my Beginning Poetry Workshop, which is comprised of people who are hiding incognito. They're really advanced poets who are pretending to be beginners. Cecilia Brownfit's poetry makes the mythic immediate, sensuous, and contemporary. She can write through silence so thick every heartbeat is hushed. Until we encounter an enchanted being made of dust and vapor, color and wind, fitted with skin boundaries and bone. Cecilia's poetry helps us to experience how imagination coalesces with song. Through her distinct and original vision, we are grabbed by the rough-pelted mystery that permits all the hidden identities within us to arise and transform. Cecilia.
8: Swan Woman. I am an animal mother. I am a maid of dirt and water woman. I was a swan who agreed to lose my wings for love and a family. But I continued aching and craning for a chance again to be free. I never stopped longing to be free. And once I did get my feathers returned to me, they were ill-fitting and my bones broke, returning back to their first shapes, and I lay crumpled for a long time on the path to the sea, unable to walk or fly, waiting, waiting for my true form to come back to me. It's not an automatic transformation when you've said yes to something as entirely consuming as being a mother. When a human baby finds its way between your bones and stretches your body into the shape of the burgeoning moon. And even after it's born, keeps on wrenching you, pulling arms and legs and heart in disparate directions. The bird shape doesn't come back so easily. And when you grow a human inside your black and blood cave, you're becoming an entirely different kind of animal anyway. You are shape-shifting underneath the velvet blankets of awareness into all the mother animals who have ever shoved young ones out into the world. Your nightmares tell you only a torn corner of the story because when you wake up, you forget that you have been a heavy, teated badger and an egg-swollen fish, that you have grown writhing lizards inside the soft shell that is you, that you have been feeding baby birds through your wolfish maw. I didn't know that when I bowed my head and said, yes, I will be a mother, that I would be grabbed by the rough, pelted mystery, grappled by muscle and claw, wrapped into scaled snake body, all the way around and yanked into a secondary life, a life that went on in the unconscious dark. I didn't know that it would rearrange not only my internal organs but also metamorphose all the hidden identities inside of me. I was once a swan and then I was a wife, a mother and I am still waiting for my feathers to root again into the skin of me. I am still stumbling and stuttering and graceless and pushing Through the pain of my twisting bones until I can at last reclaim my track into the sky.
1: All right. Coming up next for us, uh, we have Megan Denman. Now, I asked Megan uh, just a, a simple question, uh, really. I asked her, um, what did I ask? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, If you could fight anyone in history, who would you fight? And she gave me an answer that I did not expect. She said, I'm not a fighter. However, I could plot a mean assassination. I said, that's an awesome answer to that. (laughs) Um, uh, And in welcoming um, uh, Megan tonight will be Victoria Hanley. Give her a round of applause.
9: Where's where's Cecilia? I just wanted to thank you, because so much of reading is about mood. And the mood has gone from very light and it's moved, and you, you really changed it to a wonderful introduction for a heavier piece. So thank you. That was beautiful. Um, Megan is a beloved member of the YA workshop. She offers lots of enthusiastic encouragement to her fellow writers, as well as very helpful critique, and we all love her. So, um, she, despite being very young, has traveled widely. Not only has she lived in several places in the United States, she lived in London for three years as a child, and she studied in Paris during her high school career. And then she, um, for film studies, she went to Rome, and she's been to. Let me see if I can remember: Portugal, Ireland, Switzerland, Austria, Germany the bahamas, jamaica, japan, my and most importantly, <laughs> south korea. and when i say south uh, that was most important it's because she's really interested in north korea and has studied it quite a bit and she has incorporated some of the more ghastly elements of that culture into her YA dystopia, which when i say YA i mean young adult genre. So, the, um, her, her novel is structured such that there are four points of view, all written in first person, and that's not very easy to do. She's only going to be reading one of them, one point of view, one scene, and it uh, falls page 30, 35, something like that. So, it's not the beginning, but it can really stand alone, um, and the only... Backstory that I really need to give you is that the word cleansed means killed, and that the first person character for this is a 17 year old boy. So when she's saying I, even though she's a lovely young woman, she's really a boy. <laughs> and um, the father in this dinner is a revered member of the military. And this, in this scene, we get to find out what he's like with his family. Um, in YA, as in all other writing, there's a very big challenge to be able to um, write a lot of emotion that is present in the action, the setting, and the dialogue only. It isn't told to the reader at all. The reader gets it from the writing and Megan excels at that. So I'm excited to hear her read. And it's not separation anxiety, it's connection anxiety more like it.
10: Oh, okay. All right, here we go. A dull pain gathers behind my eyes as I glance at the empty play setting at the head of the table, a white porcelain plate and soup bowl with golden flowers inlaid along the edges, thin-stemmed crystal wine glass and polished cutlery. The centerpiece is a large wreath of white flowers wrapped around golden twisted candlesticks. This is much more than we usually do for dinner, but the play setting at the head of the table is all the explanation I need. My appetite wanes. Mother's across from me, her, her shoulders rigid, her face placid and smooth Her hair is black, like mine, and pulled up in a thick braid The neckline of her dress is lower than it normally is To suit my father's taste, no doubt Around her neck hangs the large diamond necklace he gave her for a birthday If not for my father's position, such an extravagant item would be confiscated Perhaps he's not coming, I blurt out He's coming, she says gently I press on, perhaps he's been delayed and he won't be able to make it I glance in the direction of 653, the frail young woman that takes care of our house. She stands stiffly by the doors to the kitchen. Her identification number, 187653, sits thick, black, and raised against the white skin on the side of her neck. When you enter a work prison camp, they strip you of your name, your identity, and tattoo you with a number. But 187653 never had a name. She was born into the work camp, and her life will be spent fulfilling her grandfather's punishment. Her family is imprisoned for stealing food. Only disloyalty gets you cleansed. Other than that, no matter the crime, whether stealing, rape or murder, all are punished the same way: three generations serving either in the work camps or as a household slave. 187653 will never know freedom because 53 years ago, her, father stole a pe- her grandfather stole a piece of fruit. We know her as 653, and she's my mother's favorite, hand-picked by her to care for us. She's been working in our house since she was six. I was five back then, so it means she must be 18 now. Her hair is buzzed, and she's wearing a simple gray work frock worn by all household slaves. Some people give their servants decent clothing, and my mother would have, I'm sure, but my father would never allow it. My father... Um. Sorry. Sit up straight, my love, mother says, as she runs a hand over her braid, making sure no strand has fallen loose. Her fingers quake. I am sitting up straight. My posture is always perfect. I open my mouth to say so, but the dining room door opens, and father strides in. Fiance, darling, I was starting to think you wouldn't make it. Mother beams at him, and for a moment, it feels like she's genuinely pleased to see him. My father's lips pull up at the corners, but it's more of a grimace than a smile. I apologize for my tardiness. I was detained. He doesn't sound sorry at all. Like mother, his appearance is impeccable. His maroon uniform spotless and crisp, his badges shining in the candlelight. His coloring is so fair, it's hard to imagine I have any of his DNA. I look for 653 again, but she's gone. Father sits, taking my mother's hand in his, he kisses the back of it. I would never miss so rare an opportunity to have dinner with my family. He speaks softly. When I was a child, he told me that a man should never shout. Shouting is for people who do not have the power to command silence. 653 walks in, carrying the first course and the crystal decanter of wine on a tray. She serves the soup first, then picks up the decanter. Mother smiles gently at her, but 653's shoulders creep higher and higher as she moves around the table. I don't acknowledge her when she fills my glass. Nothing good comes of showing 653 any kindness. When she's serving my father, his gaze tracks a path from my mother to the decanter, up 653's arm to her face. 653 begins to tremble. Father catches her scrawny wrist in his hand, and she inhales a sharp breath but freezes. Fiance, what is it? Despite Mother's blank expression, the muscles of her neck are tight. You're quite plump, my father says to 653, as he rolls her wrist back and forth in his grip. Lifting his other hand, he feels along 653's forearm. Quite plump indeed. She's not. In fact, she's so malnourished, I can make out the vertebrae in her spine through her clothes. You must be well-fed. Are you well-fed, girl? He leans back in his chair to see her face, and her eyebrows ri- and his eyebrows rise delicately in question. Shaking, 653 glances at him, but quickly lowers her head again. I am well-fed, sir. But her voice breaks. Hmm. That will not do. What good is a prisoner who is content with life, Father says, as if asking a particularly amusing question? If life in the cage is more comfortable than life beyond the bars, what is the point of the cage as a punishment? You must long to leave the cage. That is how prison works. Turn to me, girl. Slowly, 653 turns to face him. Her lips are pressed into a taut line, and her nostrils flare with every breath. Tears brim her eyes, which dart helplessly around the room before reluctantly meeting my father's callous gaze. Having such a fat servant in my home is putting off my appetite. My father's grip tightens, and he pulls her face close to his. You will no longer eat. You will fast. She'll be too weak to work, mother interjects, and I flinch. That's a mistake. Father's eyes widen. Mother never speaks up, never talks back to him, ever. He tilts his head to the side to see around 653, then pushes her back and away. 653 stumbles but doesn't flee. She has to wait to be excused. Is that so? Father asks. Mother smiles hesitantly. What good is she if she cannot work, my love? She'll be of no use to me then. Father turns his sharp gaze upon me. And you, son, do you agree with your mother? Do you not think that 653 could stand to lose a few pounds so that her obesity will not offend? I glance at 653, who's steadfastly staring at the floor. She's holding her left left wrist that's purpling, its skin and bone like the rest of her. I have to say the right thing, do the right thing I if I agree with mother if I defend 653 it'll only make it worse for the both of them hunger has never kept people from working before I whisper that's right father sneers the corners of his mouth pulling back too far making him look deranged he turns to 653 well then we're agreed when I decide you look more like the slave that you are then and only then will you eat do you understand yes sir Her voice is barely a breath of air and tinged with pain. Get out. The words are soft, almost gentle. 653 doesn't need telling twice. When the door shuts behind her, he turns to us and smiles. Mother takes another sip of wine, too large a sip, and when when she sets the glass down, she almost knocks it over. Father steadies the glass, then reaches out and touches the diamond hanging from her neck. To her credit, Mother doesn't flinch, even though I do. Exquisite, Father says, running his fingers over the diamond. Mother tilts her chin up and swallows nervously. Father lifts her bowl and sets it out of her reach. What? I start to ask, but Mother shoots me a warning look. You cannot possibly require me to tell you what you've done to deserve this, Father says. She sets aside the spoon and moves her hands into her lap. No. No. Even now her face is empty of anything but polite indifference. Words tingle in my mouth, making my teeth ache. My tongue feels too large and I can't move or do anything. Father takes mother's glass and drinks from it. Our eyes meet over the rim. His are unfeeling as he takes me in. Setting down the glass next to his, he says, The hay barns are to be cleansed tomorrow. Their son was in your year. I nod, trying not to look at my mother, at the soup, or at the door through which 653 has fled. It's never pleasant to witness the death of a friend, but a traitor—well, that is something else entirely. Are you pleased? Cl- are, you pe- are you pleased, Kai? You and the highborn boy were friends were- once, were you not? Father asks. He's right. We were friends once, but I cannot believe he remembers that or even knows it. Pleased that Bane will be executed? No. But what's the right answer? I peek at my mother, who inclines her head ever so slightly. A traitor is being cleansed, I say. There's nothing more pleasing than that. I look down at my plate. Praise the great leader. A malicious grin spreads over my father's face. Praise the great leader indeed. Oh,
1: man. Um, Last year uh, We lost a a legendary member Of of the writer community in Denver His name is Lenny Trinilla, And uh, Lenny used to always go hot like that Hot like that I won't fuck around I won't waste your time And that that reminded me of that Thank you so much Fantastic work Uh, we are on to our last uh, writer, um, Emily Johns O'Leary. The question I asked Emily was, if you could live in a book, TV show, or movie, what would you live in? And she said that she would live in Harry Potter, and she would be herself as a, witter, as a wizard in the Quidditch World Cup, which I thought, <laughs> that's pretty fly. I can give it that. Now, um, her instructor could not be here tonight, uh, Paula Younger, so I am going to be Paula here we go. (laughs) I I can't do it. I'm just gonna be me. Um, I've had the good fortune to have Emily Johns O'Leary in a few of my short classes. Each time I'm looking forward to seeing what she will come up with next. In fiction, Emily is a chameleon. She writes about a family of high wire walkers, a man who delivers pharmaceutical medicines for death row inmates and a transgender person auditioning to be a Disney princess. (laughs) Emily has an incredible authority. I believe every story she writes through her incredible details, insights, narrative voice, and empathy toward her main characters. But the excerpt you'll hear tonight is from my favorite story of hers, Testimony. It fits well with the theme of separation anxiety. Rachel is in college and becomes separated from her fundamental Christian religion, separated from her mother, separated from her beloved pastor Tim, and even separated from herself through an unexpected romantic relationship. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Welcome up, Emily.
0: Thank you. This is from the middle of the story, and I think all you need to know is, like was said, Rachel is recently out of college as a preschool teacher, um, and Pastor Tim famously lost his virginity in a river where people had been baptized earlier in the day. And when I put it that way, I think maybe I should revise the beginning and make it more concise. I curled forward in the tiny chair in the empty classroom, knees rising against my breasts, and absentmindedly wrote my name at the top of my testimony draft in crayon as I waited for my mother's email to open. She had been in charge of organizing guest speakers for the church's True Love Waits program for the last few years. We're studying what Jesus wants for purity in our lives, she had written. We'd love for you to especially talk about how you felt Satan working to pull you farther from Christ and how you realized afterward that was what happened. I've been praying about it. Love, Mom. (laughs) I scanned my draft mostly sections copied and pasted from previous talks and scribbled Satan's name in the margin in red crayon (laughs) next to a paragraph where he would probably fit what my testimony didn't say I was 18 when I had sex with Justin my first year of college and two years after my father left my mother called it making love to be clear that it was exactly what I should have saved for the one person God meant for me My college roommate called it rape and said I should file assault charges right away. I called it the only time in my life when I felt a perfect, precise balance between being in and out of control for ten minutes. I knew Justin reasonably well from intro to sociology, and we had gone out almost every weekend that first fall at Bowdoin College. I had been cautioned about dating boys who were not Christian, but Justin was smart and asked questions about religion without smirking like it was a trap after four years of Christian high school with peers who laughed at the idea that some people believed in evolution. My classes at Bowdoin had been a shock, and not everyone was so friendly. My mistake was probably inviting him back to my room to watch a movie after a date in early November. I meant it innocently enough, but I can't pretend that the old youth group warnings about appearances didn't cross my mind. If it would look wrong to somebody else, like entering a dorm room at night with a good-looking boy. It probably is. I had only ever kissed my Christian high school boyfriend, Paul, for the recommended maximum of three seconds, (laughs) which we had maybe sometimes bent to 10, 15 on special occasions. Kissing Justin at first was not particularly different. Slow and lips only, hands safely on shoulders. And my desire was no greater or less than what I used to feel in three seconds with Paul. But then Justin's smooth tongue was in my mouth and his hands were on my legs and there was no accountability, no reliable Christian boy pulling back and smiling. The years of warnings had always felt like too much and now they were not enough. Justin pulled me all the way down onto my bed and I wanted to keep kissing him and I did. The part I didn't want was when he pushed my skirt up and skillfully flicked off the wrapper of a condom from his pocket, whispering something about how much he liked me. I remember saying no, but maybe I wasn't loud enough. He just smiled, and that confused me. So in the moment when I could have been repeating myself or screaming for help, I was puzzling over that smile and did nothing. Justin didn't look at my face as he pushed into me, the rubbery surface of the condom sticking, until he pushed it harder and forced himself through the impossibly small space. It seemed afterward like I should have been able to escape if I had tried, but it felt too dangerous, like I would make the rip wider if I struggled. I stared at a spot of chipped paint on the ceiling as I tried to grasp this unintended defiance, a mistake I had never thought myself capable of making, but now found that I was. Or had I done everything right and had God failed to protect me? Justin pushed harder, and I didn't know if I had more power than I had ever thought or none at all. When he left that night, when he realized I couldn't move, that I couldn't stop staring at that spot on the ceiling— The only thing he said was, well, you were sending me a lot of mixed signals. It seemed like you liked it. I realized then that people would believe him. That would be the story. I became very useful to the Bowdoin Evangelical student community after that and gave my testimony nine times over the remaining years. Small groups sharing, large group worship, an abstinence-themed retreat, presentations for classes of new freshmen who needed a cautionary tale the story was a little different each time, depending on what the worship leaders wanted the group to learn. My distance from Jesus at the moment I strayed, the wholeness I lost, the healing I would still have to go through with my future husband. Above all, the unbelievable power of God's forgiveness, though sometimes I was mainly supposed to emphasize that it was really bad sex. Married sex would be much better, they love to reassure us. I could easily have gotten a job with campus ministries, but I opted instead for a career in which I would not have to talk about Justin at story time. As I drove on the icy roads toward my mother's church, I saw that it had been remodeled, modern and square-looking now, with a larger sanctuary, the sheer gray walls repelling the new snow in a way the old vines never had. The sculpture of Jesus on the cross had been moved and was angled away from the streetlight so he appeared fully naked from the parking lot. "'Rachel, we were just getting worried.' My mother rushed toward me, several booklets sliding from an overflowing box in her arms. She wore her hair curly and never styled it, I think so that everyone would see that she had her priorities straight. I picked up a booklet that had fallen. Whole living the purity of the gospel, was stamped over a picture of a smiling blonde girl in a simple blue dress. "'Roads are icy,' I said, helping her stack the booklets on a table. "'You're up first, then the worship team will play,' And thanks again for coming, sweetie. Pastor Tim and I are so proud. She nodded toward the front of the room, where my former youth group leader was adjusting the size of song lyrics on the projector screen, I need nothing but you, Jesus, only you, while a few high school students connected electric guitars to the sound system. Pastor Tim had the strong biceps and flat abdomen of a Christian youth pastor who talks about health of body as a path to health of spirit, and who clearly knows he looks good. He glanced toward us and clicked off the projector as he strolled over, grinning at me as he used to when I was 17 and a youth leader under his mentorship, as though there were nothing about me that had changed. I had the sudden thought that if I ran away quickly enough, the snow would cover my tracks before they found me. Rachel, we've missed you around here, so glad you could come. He clapped his arm around my shoulder in a safe side hug. It's such a blessing to have you, Believe me, I know it's a hard thing to share. He looked down at me with his arms still around my shoulder, and I knew we were both picturing the famous story of his first time in the baptism river. <laughs> but people need to hear your story. I'll be praying for you. I pulled out the folder with my notes and set it on the podium, then smiled at the youth group members as they trickled into the room. Pastor Tim introduced me. They all wore their skinny jeans and stylish shirts that didn't reveal too much. Eighteen teenagers, who believed I was going to say something sincere, stared back at me from four rows. I committed my sexuality to the Lord when I was 14, I began. This youth group was my family in high school, and I grew in my relationship with God every day. I learned about what He wanted for me, and I chose to live in Christ's image in service to the Lord. I knew that meant saving my whole self for my husband and keeping sex as a sacred part of that bond as God intended. In other words, I thought I was prepared. I thought I had made my choice and that all I had to do was follow through. The introduction felt mechanical, familiar. I wondered if it had really happened to me. I didn't know how I would be tested, and I didn't recognize how far I was from Jesus until it was too late. Satan used a boy in my sociology class to try to pull me from Christ— I resisted the urge to say, too bad I didn't enjoy it like Pastor Tim. (laughs) (laughs) Their eyes were wide as they listened. I scanned the rows of high school faces and then made myself look toward the left of the front row where my mother sat next to Pastor Tim. He was listening expressively, nodding after every sentence and smiling when I made eye contact. My mother looked like she was concentrating very hard on holding still. Her jaw was set and her light green eyes were on my forehead, fixed and focused. The lies were familiar. In my testimonies, it had never been rape. The idea of sharing that I had said no and Justin hadn't listened seemed like letting the audience too deeply into the moment when it happened. And if they entered that moment with me, experienced my protests and fear and pain, and if they still judged it to have been my fault, I didn't ever want that clarity. They clapped with the enthusiastic support of people who think they just heard a story about a nice girl's unexpected fall into temptation and who are relieved to realize they're not the only ones. My mother clapped briefly with her eyes down and then slipped to the back to set up snacks, and I was glad to notice that when Pastor Tim put his hand on my shoulder and took the microphone to pray for me, an understanding grin on his face, it didn't turn me on at all.
9: Thank you.
1: Such, uh, such bravery here tonight. Um, well, that, that wraps us up. You guys enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you for coming out to the color
5: Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.